Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And Dublina, I don't know if you've heard of Felicity Aston. I heard this dispatch from her on the radio the other week. No, I haven't heard of her. She's a polar explorer, a British woman who's trying to make a solo ski trek across Antarctica. And of course, being a modern day lady, she's got high tech equipment. For instance, she can tweet. I checked out her Twitter feed this morning, in fact, and there was an update from just a couple hours before. Before. But still, she's out there in Antarctica all alone with more than 1,000 miles to ski, certainly a physically difficult and a mentally challenging thing to do. So it kind of got me thinking. We've talked a lot about polar explorers on the podcast. People really seem to love episodes about polar explorers and their exploits. But the stories are usually pretty grim, as you'd imagine. They're punctuated by this glory above all attitude that a lot of times gets the explorers or maybe even more often their crew, all of their men, killed at the end. And that's maybe why when I suggested today's topic to you as something for us to do a podcast on, um, Polar Explorer Fritjof Nansen, you were hoping maybe there'd be an exhumation involved. Well, it did seem kind of promising. An icy exhumation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't blame you for, for thinking that. But the first thing that I think everybody needs to understand about Nansen is that he was a different breed of polar explorer. In fact, I almost think he has less in common with his contemporaries or the polar explorers who came before him who were just sort of like, get out there, run over whatever you need to to get there, bring lots of men, it doesn't matter if they die, just achieve your goal. Um, I think he has less in common with those guys than he does with modern Arctic adventurers. So people like Felicity Aston, who are just... You know, trying to hope, trying to inspire other people to achieve um, great things, or maybe more, more likely, real scientists who are out there collecting real data. Yes. Yeah, so Nansen wasn't just out there for the recognition, and consequently, he wasn't willing to throw his life away. Although he did have some close calls, which we'll take a look at later. As a result, Nansen also had the odd distinction of being a polar explorer with a late life story that's really more impressive even than his youthful adventures. He became a diplomat, a humanitarian, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and so it's a life that has earned us a two-part episode. Yeah, with that kind of accomplishment, <laughs> you're going to break it up into two episodes for us. So it all starts, though, on the skis. Fritjof Nansen was born October 10, 1861, near Kristania, which is now Oslo in Norway. And at the time, I think it's kind of uh, a developed suburban area now, but at the time it was pretty rural. There were woods that backed up to his family's property, a lot of countryside, and his father was a lawyer. His mother was an aristocratic athlete, and so he came from a comfortable background, but one that was still pretty rigorous, too. Both of his parents emphasized uh, good morals and um, kind of a 
kind of a simple lifestyle almost. They both had kids from earlier marriages and everybody, all the kids were encouraged to participate in sports, which were really getting a lot more popular at this time with the upper classes, especially uh, winter sports in Norway. And all of that dovetailed too a bit with a nature craze, perfect place to grow up with these woods and countryside and opportunities to get out there and experience nature all around him. And Nansen didn't just grow up playing one sport. He grew up swimming, tumbling, fishing, hiking, skating, and skiing. Ultimately, he got to a point where he could ski 50 miles a day with just his dog for company. So imagine skiing the distance of a marathon and then skiing back again. And I mean, I haven't done it, but I've always heard that cross-country skiing is incredibly grueling, one of the highest calorie burning sports that's out there. Yeah, I haven't done it either, but it looks tough. When it came time to choose a field of study, Nansen's father pushed him toward attending the officer's academy, figuring tuition was free and that the lifestyle would allow his son the chance to continue the outdoor pursuits that he loved so much. But Nansen's art teacher, on the other hand, pushed him to become a painter and a professional artist. But Nansen decided to go to university and study zoology instead. It was a profession that he hoped would allow him to get outdoors and sketch, so kind of the best of both worlds. That's what he was hoping for. And he, being a smart kid, really might have easily just gone to university and continued in that scientific career, you know, maybe even done so quite successfully, had it not been for an offer that came up a year into college from one of his father's friends who was looking for a zoology student to join a whale and seal hunting expedition in the Arctic Ocean aboard a ship called the Viking, kind of like he wanted an intern aboard or something almost. So, Nansen went on this four-and-a-half-month-long trip and took the time to study everything he saw, animals, ice formations, currents, the northern lights. He'd take notes on it all. He would do sketches. He'd take photos constantly, really um, working quite diligently. So when he came home, he put it all together, wrote a book, and started dreaming of going back. That was the most important part of this expedition for him on the Viking, this Arctic bug that he caught. He also got a really sweet job after that. And remember, he's still only one year into college at this point. His job was as the zoological curator at the Bargain Museum. Bargain was one of Norway's most cosmopolitan cities and had a strong scientific community. So Nansen got to work with Daniel C. Danielson, an Arctic explorer from the 1870s, and his son-in-law, Dr. Gerhard Hansen, who discovered the leprosy bacillus. He also made jaunts to Germany and to Italy to work in some of the continent's top labs. And the only thing that he didn't like about this was the temperate winter. In 1884, he skied across Norway from Bargen to Christiania in order to take part in a ski jumping cross-country competition. I think that was his first major athletic accomplishment or public athletic accomplishment. Yeah, it got a lot of press, right? Skiing across Norway, yes. It sounds like it would be a difficult thing to do. But all of this time, you know, ski jumping competitions aside, he was doing his research. And in 1888, he defended his dissertation on the central nervous
nervous systems of certain lower vertebrates. And uh, the really interesting thing about this, I mean, I think it was a well-received dissertation on its own, but what interests me about it is that he translated it himself. He spoke five different languages. He translated it into other languages and kind of abbreviated it too, made it more readable, sort of more, maybe more like the Scientific American version of his dissertation so that it would get a wider readership and people could see what he was working on. And we've talked already about how great of an artist he was. He illustrated it himself with his own lithographs and he used a device called a camera lucida to copy directly from the microscope to lithographical stone. So you can look up his dissertation online and see these illustrations and they really do look like line drawings of what you would see under a microscope. So he did a really great job with this, and after that, the job offer started rolling in, but Nansen turned them down. He had something else on his mind at the time, and that was polar exploration. He had caught that bug. So years earlier, actually immediately after returning from the Viking expedition, Nansen had started thinking about maybe a trip to Greenland. Yeah, and he decided to start with what he knew best, which was skiing. In the 1880s, the interior of Greenland was still unexplored, and many people even believed that it might be ice-free. Nansen, however, believed it was not only icy, but passable, and so he decided he'd ski from Greenland's remote east coast to its inhabited west. And this was just crazy. I mean, everyone thought that this was a crazy idea. Yeah, I mean, mean, crazy is the right word to describe it. That is what people, people thought, or suicidal, maybe, because... Skiing east to west meant there would be no retreat. You know, you couldn't decide um, a few days, a few weeks in to turn back and go back to the houses if winter was approaching too fast. You'd be stuck. And then also another thing that disturbed people was that there would be no base. And if you think about a lot of the uh, polar exploration episodes we've talked about, there is usually a base and they go on these little dashes from the base to to try to reach their goal. Uh, The other thing that people were disturbed by was that he was planning on going with skis, so no sleds, no dogs. And that, of course, means that you can only bring what you can carry and still be able to ski across glaciers. Yeah, his Nobel Prize biography describes it like this, quote, In 1926, explaining his philosophy to the students at St. Andrews in his rectorial address, Nansen said that a line of retreat from a proposed action was a snare and that one should burn his boats behind him so that there is no choice but to go forward. So I've seen this covered a few different ways in different sources, kind of as a metaphoric thing, burning boats, burning bridges, or as he really burned his boat. So I am curious to to learn any more about that if um, if anybody knows or has read um, more on Nansen and this boat burning potential. It seems like your line of retreat would already be... Um, removed, even if the boats were still there. Right, so why take the time to burn the boats? Why take them, unless you just wanted one last big warm bonfire. (laughs) Um, So consequently, because of the nature of this expedition, Nansen had trouble funding what seemed like suicide to a lot of people. He finally got a grant from a Danish politician and formed a five-member team. There were three Norwegians and two Sami and uh, had a lot of trouble getting going on the mission to or on the expedition. There were many delays, and uh, they couldn't even start ascending the Greenland Glacier until about mid-August 1888, by which point 
Arctic summer was kind of coming to an end, and it, one of the crucial things was to be able to make it across the the glacier before winter set in. So the party skied 9,000 feet above sea level in temperatures as low as negative 49 degrees Fahrenheit, with no choice but to just keep on going. They had brought along some pemmican, which, as I understand it, is kind of like the original power bar. But the Portable mixture, food. <laughs> but the mixture didn't have enough fat in it, which was really, I mean, they were close to starvation, right? Well, they were suffering a lot from that, and... Um, Fortunately, though, they were able to have enough strength to keep going. And by late September, they reached the West Coast. And by early October, they got to a settled area. Here, another happy accident happened for Nansen's life. The last boat had left two months earlier. so It sounds like a bad thing. It sounds like a bad thing, but it did give him and the other explorers a chance to spend the winter with the local population. So Nansen took full advantage of this. He hunted, he sketched, he learned to kayak, he made friends. So when he came home to what was a hero's welcome, he had enough material for two books. The first, Crossing of Greenland, which was published in 1890, and Eskimo Life, which was published in 1891. And that stint with the with the people there learning how to kayak, learning how to survive in these temperatures really did prove vital for his survival later on. And just kind of a side note, too, that I really like, in addition to providing a lot of new information about Greenland and its people and their customs and just the Greenland topography, too, the trip was this huge PR campaign for skiing, which was, as we've mentioned, you know, something that was still kind of catching on, getting more popular. Kids started to form nonsense clubs where they would go out and ski and do outdoorsy kind of pursuits. And um, he was a really great ambassador for this. And I think this is maybe a good opportunity to talk a little bit about how he looked, too. Nansen is a popular suggestion, and I wonder how much of it has to do with the very impressive mustache he sported. I know. I think Tico would be jealous. <laughs> I think he would. Well, you were hoping for a mustache exhumation if we're going to really lay it all out there. Yeah, if we're going to be honest, I wasn't just hoping for a regular exhumation. We were hoping for another mustache <laughs> exhumation. But, but really, like, go look him up, though. He's got a look of a polar explorer, and I think that it'll help, too, when... If Billy Idol were a polar explorer. He does look a lot like Billy Idol with the mustache. But I think, especially in the second episode where we talk about some of his diplomatic work, people talk about his presence, the presence he had and the confidence he had. And I think that that really comes across in pictures of him and will help all of that make sense. So Nansen was the new hero, not only of skiing, but of exploration. And he spent the next four years writing and working as the curator of the Zootomical Institute of the University of Oslo. He also married Ava Sars, a singer, a daughter of a marine zoologist, and an avid outdoors woman. You can find pictures of her, too, in a pretty awesome little ski costume. I mean, and by little, I do not mean little in any way. <laughs> it's got a large skirt no, attached. No, full coverage. <laughs> but by summer 1891, Nansen had that polar itch again. He started to plan another trip. And to understand his reasons for settling on this particular trip, we have to go back a little bit. Back in 1879, the American ship, the USS Jeanette, had gotten caught in ice north of Siberia. And 
That's pretty bad news, but the ship managed to hold together and drift along for about 21 months before finally succumbing to the pressure of the ice. Uh, from my understanding of how this happens, the ice, you know, forms around your boat, starts to cause immense pressure, eventually starts to break up the boat and pull it down. So that's what happened to the Jeanette, and half of the crew ultimately died trying to make a dash back to Siberia in 1881. Three years later, though, remnants of the Jeanette washed up in Greenland, and it was a major discovery in that it proved the theory that currents went east to west over the Arctic. So Nansen saw the news of the Jeanette and thought, hey, if I had a boat that didn't get crushed by the ice, I could ride that current and maybe go right over the North Pole. Sounds kind of crazy again. Yeah, sounds like part two to crazy idea land. And it, it was a really bold idea, but it was one that wisely worked off of observation and careful planning rather than the previous model we've alluded to a little bit of Arctic assault, really. You know, you get out there with like 50 to 100 guys and just go with the techniques you know, don't adapt to the climate, really. Just bundle up and make a dash for it, a a technique that obviously often ended in tragedy. There's a National Geographic article by Hampton Sides on Nansen's expedition, and it quotes a Nansen biographer named Roland Huntford as saying that, It was very unusual for an explorer to, quote, take note of the forces of nature and try to work with them and not against them. So to pay attention to what way the currents were going, think that maybe you could let yourself be iced in and just literally go with the flow instead of um, instead of just throwing everything you had at it. It took some planning, though, to figure out exactly how to work with nature in this way. I mean, Nansen had to put a lot of time and thought into this. So the first step was the ship, of course. Nansen got together with the shipbuilder Colin Archer to design a vessel that wouldn't be crushed by the ice pack, one that would be pushed up instead of pulled down. He also decided that for the mission to work, it would have to be very small. So he started gathering supplies for four or five years for about a dozen men. So a really innovative way of thinking about it. Every detail of spending years trapped in Arctic ice had to be considered very carefully from the strength of the hull to the sanity of the men. The rudder and propeller, for example, could be pulled up as ice moved in. An insulation of reindeer hair, felt, cork, and tar kept things warmer inside. And a windmill powered electric lights that would keep the men in high spirits during those dark polar winters, allowing them to read from a 600-book library that had been collected, listen to an automatic organ, or chat in the saloon that was created on the vessel. Which, you know, maybe that sounds frivolous, but if you're seriously planning to be in the ice for four or five years in the dark for much of that time, you know, you've got to take into account the mental well-being. Yeah, the, the spirit of the of the men. So Nansen's wife named the ship the Fram, which means forward appropriately enough. And the expedition set off in June 1893 from Oslo, headed toward the new Siberian islands. And by September... They did what they were hoping to do. The ship was frozen in. And you can imagine how harrowing that would be, waiting to see if it was going to work or whether your ship would actually sink. And here's how Nansen himself described it. He said, 
A deafening noise began, and the whole ship shook. The noise steadily grows till it is like all the pipes of an organ. Two days after that, he wrote that the ice is trying its very utmost to grind the Fram into powder. But that construction worked. The ship held together; it didn't sink, and the Fram was able to ride the drift. And the crew did entertain themselves with scientific research and ski trips, and even a self-published newspaper, which sounds very interesting. <laughs> Big events of the day. Yep. The drift, however, was unpredictable and really slow. So Nansen started to worry that they'd never be able to get far enough north to reach the pole, and that the whole thing might actually take something like six to seven years instead of four to five. So he had to make a major decision. He decided to take one comrade, a pack of dogs, and leave the relatively cushy newspaper filled from to make a dash for the pole. The only problem here, though, was that besides bad maps, killer temperatures, and slushy ice, there'd be no way that he could catch up with the Fram when he was done. So the Fram, of course, would have drifted too far for him to make it back by then. So. To go out on this dash to the pole, he would have to find the pole, and then come back, and then try to find solid land, civilization, or just be left out there on the ice to die. So that's where we're going to leave off. In the next episode, we have a polar bear attack, a Nobel Prize, and because we did mention that Nansen had a pretty impressive later career too. Saving an estimated seven to twenty-two million Russians from starvation, and we do mean millions. So sometimes it's it's uh, smart to be careful with your polar expedition planning because you have great things ahead of you. Well, keeping with this exploration theme, we're now going to move on to listener mail. So, Jablina, remember the summer when we got a lot of postcards from a girl who was taking a grand tour around Europe? I do. That was a pretty good postcard collection、it、we amassed there. Very impressive, and I liked how she would tell us what she was doing when she was、um, when she was writing the postcard, where she was sitting in these amazing cities,、so、which podcast she listened to, which and which、podcast. city. It was very fun. So, I think we have a kind of part two of that from listener Hillary, who is. Sending us postcards while she's taking a violin tour. She's a violinist and she's touring around Europe,、um, maybe beyond. She was in Hanover, Germany, when she sent us her first card. But I really like something she wrote. She said that I've been particularly enjoying the episodes about things that happened in the Civil War era, as my violin was made in 1864 in France. Hearing about that time is like finding out fascinating factoids about someone you know very well, because I spent a lot of time with this violin, and it definitely has a personality. So I thought that was such a neat commentary because you obviously can't know a person who was born in 1864. I don't think there are any of them left, but you can be so familiar with an instrument. You know, as a professional violinist, who spends much of her time with this. This thing from 1864 and feels a connection to that that time, you know, a very、mm-hmm. real connection. And whoever played that violin before, well, and presumably all the people who've who've、mm-hmm. played it before, and the person who made it, and、um, I just thought that was very neat. So Hillary has also sent us a couple postcards.、Um, one of them is from Palermo. I think that might be my favorite. It's the Church of the Martirana, and I think that while you're googling pictures of Nansen and his <laughs> his wife and skis,、um, you could go ahead and Google this church too because 
To me, it almost looks like three scoops of pink sherbet on top. I mean, that was, I thought it was uh, photoshopped or something when I first looked at it, just because the color is so striking. Um, she wrote to us, too, that she she must have felt the same way. She said that it was so visually memorable that she had to send it instead of a more dignified one. She probably wrote that because the postcard does have a, again, Sherbert-hued uh, title above, mm-hmm. labeling it as Palermo. But anyway, Hillary, thank you so much for keeping us up with your travels, and um, good luck with all your, your performances. And if you would like to send us some information about your own travels or history podcasts that have taken you places or ideas that you have for future podcasts, you can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Nonsense's favorite sport, we do have an article called How Cross-Country Skiing Works. And you can find it by searching on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.